0: You know, what changed the life of the Apostle Paul, what changed the life of a man named Zacchaeus, whom we talked about several weeks ago, what changed the life of Peter, James, and John, what changed the life of Matthew, a tax collector, what changed the life of untold millions since then, is not just the knowledge of who Jesus is and not just the knowledge of what Jesus has done, but an encounter with him. The knowledge, the Bible says, will puff you up. And, uh, the, the, but, and knowledge is good to have. But it's the experience, it's the encounter with the risen Christ that changes us. And that's my prayer for us today, that we may have an encounter with the risen Christ. We've been talking over the last few weeks about coming back and getting in focus, or some of us may never have had the focus, of what's really important there's a difference between things that are important and things that are vital. Vital means necessary for life. If you ever have to go into the emergency room, if you've been in an accident or some emergency and you come in there and they'll try to find out what your symptoms are, but the very first thing they'll do is check what? Your vital signs. They want to know whether the things that are really critical for you to live are functioning correctly. And when they've established that that's so, then they'll begin to look at the more peripheral things of your general health. And then the same is true spiritually. There are things that are important. There are things that are are valuable. There are things that we love. There are things that are our favorite subjects. But there are very few things that are vital for us. And the thing we began to look at is the most important thing in life is to make sure we're prepared and that those around us are prepared for their eternity, for the day we'll stand before the God who created us and the God who gave His Son for us and give an account of what we did with Him. That's the most important thing. That's vital because... Everything you do on this earth affects what happens here. That one thing affects eternity. Where you will spend eternity, not only where but how you will spend eternity. And we live so much of our life avoiding it, pretending it's not there. I don't want to think about that. I want to put that off to tomorrow. I want to just have it fun today, not realizing that we don't control when that day comes in our life. But it will come. And we looked at that And as sobering as it may be, that's exactly what we need to do sometimes, is to be sobered up, to be awakened and focus back on what's important because then the things that aren't so important just kind of fade away. And yet they're all the things that demand our attention. And yet this one thing that's critical doesn't. We looked at that and then we looked the next time at, we started with this man Zacchaeus, the tax collector that was up in a tree and Jesus came by and he came down and Jesus said, I want to be with you. And the verse that ends that scripture, ends that section of scripture, says that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus knew what the one vital thing was, to seek, to go after, to find, and then to save. And what that's laying a foundation for is since he's the head of the church and that was his goal, we being the body of Christ, it has to be our goal also. The only reason we're here, the only reason the church exists, and everything that's done in the church and through the church has to ultimately be to carry out what his purpose was, was to seek and to save the lost. And I really felt in my heart today that we need to look at what's really vital at this time of year. It's a wonderful time of year. It's not necessarily wonderful for everybody. We have to be aware that there are some people in our midst that, f- for whom this is a very challenging time of year because they're alone. The very things we heard celebrated and the Harlow's and the Row House's shared about family and tradition is the very thing that often creates such a heartbreak in people's lives because they don't have those families. They don't have those traditions, and they're alone. And on a holiday when... <laughs> and a time of year when we're focused so much on family, we're focused so much on things that, that, that are important to us, and there are many people we have to be aware out there that don't have those, and they're alone, and we need to be sensitive to that. And it's a time of year when, uh, it's a wonderful time of year. There's a lot of energy in this time of year. There's a lot of focus, and there's a, there's a my wife loves to watch, and I watch them with her, you know, Christmas movies, you know, good Christmas movies. And, 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 uh, and there's a theme that I've heard running through them this year that kind of struck my heart. And it's all about the Christmas spirit. And it made me just meditate on what. What is the Christmas spirit? And is what they talk about on TV, is what, what we hear advertised, and of course we know what's behind the advertising is money, but is what we hear in our malls, is it, is, is it what is this Christmas spirit? And is it the right true Christmas spirit. There is a Christmas spirit. There's something about it that attracts our attention. There's something about it that draws people in. We, we talk about it, we sing about it, and we hear music about it, and we watch movies about it, and we have some kind of sense of what this is, but we don't ever really think very much about, well, what really is it, and is it right? Is it that what it is? It's interesting if you look at some of these movies and TV shows and things like that, They'll talk about the town that lost the Christmas spirit. They'll talk about people who have the Christmas spirit, people finding the Christmas spirit, but they don't ever tell you what it is. You get a sense of it because one of the things you get a sense of is well, there's a sense of family. So it's very common to hear stories about people, you know, who, and, and it's in our lives. Our, our, we have family that will, some of our family will be able to come home this year that doesn't live with us, and they'll come home, and that's something we always look forward to coming together as a family. And it's wonderful, and we have our own family traditions, and, and at just, you know, even to the point that, that in our household on Christmas morning, certain people do just what you do they sit in their seat. <laughs> We're creatures of habit. We just, when we dress them up and call them traditions, but they're just habits. And, and those are good. And food is part of Christmas, unfortunately, but it is. And we had examples of that last night. And it's not just cookies, but there are always things in our house, smells. I remember thinking back, I was the oldest of five boys, and my mother was a gourmet cook. And she was, I mean, she doesn't just cook nice meals. She could bake. I mean, bake. And she baked. And I can still remember walking in the house as we came home from school on school vacation, smelling this... Beautiful aromas in the house as she was baking breads and pies. I better be careful. (laughs) I'll lose my you and myself together. All those are still memories and they're traditions. And you have your own, you know, you have meat pies. She, we, she didn't bake meat pies because she didn't come from Canada. She came from different traditions. But we all have those kind of even aromas that bring back those childhood memories. And, and so that's all part of, of what Christmas is, is the, the food and the family and the fellowship together. And it does something else. It, you know, it, it, it tends to stir up generosity it's a time of people being generous and thinking of other people that they may not normally think of and, you know, who can I, who can I give things to and who can I do things for. It's an amazing time. Back in times of war, I mean, this is how amazing it is. Back in times of war, traditionally, I don't know if it's been true in all wars, people that are hate each other and trying to kill each other will have a truce for Christmas. Something about Christmas is recognized that we shouldn't be killing each other on Christmas. Let's be kind to this person that on the 26th I'm going to try to blow his head off, but, <laughs> but I'll, I'll care enough about you today. I mean, that's got to be something powerful to motivate armies to stop shooting at each other, at least for one day. Praise God for that one day. So it's family, it's friends, it's parties, which is just people getting together and enjoying one another. It's, it's food, it's all those things are part of what Christmas is. But is that really the Christmas spirit? There must be something genuine there because we wouldn't do it year after year. There must be something genuine there because we're... But what is it? What really is it? What I've come to realize is that there's something in every one of us that's seeking something, that longs for, has a deep inner desire that we may live the rest of the year trying to avoid because we don't believe we can have it. But somewhere down inside, there's a longing for something. And somehow Christmas... Somehow the Christmas spirit, somehow these things, the, the food, the fellowship, the generosity, somehow those aspects touch on that need and give us a hope so that we begin to reach out for that. And But the problem is if we're reaching out for it in the food and in the fellowship and the generosity and all those things, we'll get a taste of something but we'll never get satisfied because those are simply the aroma, the smell of the real. When I walk into that house as a child or still, come in, and my wife's been baking something, and I go, something's in the house, and it whets my appetite because I'm not satisfied with the aroma. I'm not satisfied with the smell of the pie baking or the turkey or whatever. I'm not satisfied with that smell. That just stirs my senses up for what's the source of the smell. And the concern I have is out in the world, and that's understandable. We're satisfied with the aroma of Christmas. We're satisfied with what it's an indication of and miss. But the Tragedy is when the church slips into that. The tragedy is when we, who have the knowledge of what it's all about, forget. And we miss what's really the, the meat of Christmas, the heart of Christmas. And that's what we're going to look at today. Turn with me to Luke chapter 1. Turn with me to Luke chapter 1. We're going to read. We'll read this again before the season's out. But we're going to read a little bit of what God says Christmas is about. We're going to start in verse 26. Now, in the sixth month... The angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now, we don't see this here, but Gabriel is one of the archangels. He's one of those that are given special assignments by God. Now, notice what it says. The angel Gabriel was sent by God. It's easy to read over that too quickly. He was sent by God. God turns to his archangel Gabriel and says, I have an assignment for you. Angel just means messenger. The word in Greek is anglos, which means messenger. So an angel is just a messenger of God. And that means they're sent with a message. And God reaches over and taps at Gabriel and says, I'm sending you, I'm sending you with a message. Now, anytime God sends a messenger, it's important. And anytime God has a message to communicate, that has to be vital. We've talked about the difference between vital and important. There are all kinds of ideas and teachings out there today that may be important. But when God speaks, that's vital. When God sends an angel to speak, that's extremely vital. So what we're looking at here in these scriptures is what in the mind of God is vital for us. So he sends his angel Gabriel to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man named Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejo-. Now imagine what this must have been like. She gets up in the morning, whatever this time of day was, walks into a room, and there's an angel standing there. And I'm certain that she knew it was an angel. And he speaks to her. Aren't you glad God speaks to us? Aren't you glad God's not a silent God? But God's a God who communicates. God's a God who talks. You don't have to urge him to communicate with you. He has to encourage us and challenge us to listen to what he has to say. But God is a talking God. He is a God who speaks. In fact, in the book of Isaiah, when he's when he's pronouncing judgment on their idols, he says, "You've made you've made gods for you that have eyes but they cannot see, that have ears but they can't hear you, they have a mouth but they don't talk." Implying, "I am the true and living God, and I have eyes and I can see." I have ears to hear your prayers and your cries, and I have a mouth to speak answers to you. I am a God who speaks to you. And here is God speaking to this woman, this young girl. But in speaking to this young girl, he's speaking to us. He's speaking to the world. He's speaking something about himself. And that's what we're going to look at today. And he spoke to her, verse 28. It said, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you, or he's for you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled. That means she was scared. At the saying, and considered, what kind of greeting is this? What's going on? And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You know, most of the time when the angels appear to men or women, they've got to tell them, Don't be afraid. And often they have to tell them to get up, because they fall down, as soon as they see because that spirit realm is so glorious, so magnificent, so incredible that when we see something from that realm, it overwhelms our flesh. Do not be troubled, Mary, for you have found favor with God, verse 31, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and ye shall call his name Jesus or Yeshua, which means Savior. And He will be great. Now, Whenever you've had children, most parents, we did, you have dreams for your children. You know, you pick a name out and you say, you know, you want to pick a name that that doesn't mean axe murderer or something like that. A name that means something good, something positive, you know, favorite of God or, you know, warrior for God and things like that, and you have dreams for your children, what they're going to become and the potential that's in them. She didn't have to dream about any of that. God told her His dream for this child, His plan for this child, that He shall be great and you shall call His name salvation or Savior. verse 32. He will be great and now it's going to go to another level. He will be called the Son of God and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his King of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How can this be? Since I am a virgin, I do not know a man. And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One who is born will be called the Son of God. Wow they tell us that she must have been like 14 years old, 15 years old. An angel appears to her and said, though you're a virgin, though you've never been with a man, God's going to cause His Spirit to come upon you and conceive in your womb a child. And this child is nothing other than God's Son. Wow! And here's the danger. We've read the story so many times. We know God sent his son to the earth so well that we miss the impact of that. And the child that shall be born from you shall be called God's son. Wow. Let's read on. And he says, "Your, your, uh, Elizabeth, your relative, has conceived a son in her old age. That's, of course, going to become John the Baptist. She's now in the sixth month of her who was barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Isn't that nice to know? And Mary's answer was, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed. Over in chapter 2, we see the story of his birth. We see that... It's a familiar story, which, again, we'll read later on uh, as we get closer to Christmas. We see that Joseph brought her, down to, um, uh, brought her down to Bethlehem, and there they came because of the census. You know the story. And he was brought forth, verse 7, chapter 2, verse 7, wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger, which is a feeding trough, because there was no room at the inn. Then the angels come. And they they declare to the shepherds in the fields, they sing to them, glory to God on the highest, and they appear and shout and give glory for what's happened on this earth. Let's just read that a little bit. Verse 8, Then there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. Behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid, I guess so. And an angel again says to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy that will be to all the people, to all the people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be assigned to you. You will find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest on earth, peace, good will towards men. I mean, there was a holy worship service going Going on out in these fields. all kinds of heavenly activity has been stirred up. We don't have a time to read it this morning, but you can go over and read where these three astrologers, Eastern astrologers, that's what magi means, these eastern astrologers notice this unusual star, and they do research, and their research tells them that the star foretells the coming of a one from God. And so they start following the star, and it leads them, it leads them to, to Bethlehem. So all kinds of heavenly spiritual activities going on because something great and dramatic has happened that has never happened before in all the history of mankind. What is it? Well, we've read read man's side of this experience. Turn with me to the Gospel of John chapter 1 and we're going to look at it from God's side, what's happening here. John chapter 1. Remember what we're talking about, what this Christmas is really about, the spirit of Christmas. John 1, verse 1. In the beginning, the beginning of what? The beginning of this material realm, when God created this material realm. In the beginning was the Word. The Greek word for word there is logos, L-O-G-O-S. And the reason I tell you that is because it has a very special meaning. It means the complete declaration of some principle or concept, or when it refers to a person, it means the full expression of something. So it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. So God, the creator of the universe, at the moment he creates the universe, there's another being with him, and this being John refers to as the Word, in other words, is the full expression of God. His character, his will, and his nature is fully expressed in this second being, here identified as the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So this is not some angelic being, this is not some inferior being, this is God as God the Father, the Creator, but there is also with Him another part of Him called here, God the Word, the full expression, a separate being and yet all God, and the full expression of God the Father. He was in the beginning, the Word. So we know it's a Him. He has a personality. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, the source of life. And the life was the light of men, the source of, light, of life in men. And the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness did not comprehend it. Then it talks about John the Baptist, and it basically says, He came to bear witness of the light, but he was not the light. Verse 9, That was the true light that gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, but the world did not know him or recognize him. He came to his own, the Jews, but his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And here's what I wanted to get to. This Word, this second person of the Godhead, this being that is the full and complete and entire expression and embodiment of the character and the nature and the will of God the Father, that Word, Took on flesh and dwelt among us. So we've read Luke's account looked at through the eyes of Mary. Luke's account through the eyes of Mary, who as an angel appears and explains what's going to happen, and then she becomes pregnant, have, not having known a man, knowing that what she's going to give birth to is God's own son. And what we see here is that son is the word the second person of the Godhead and here's what's so simple so profound that it's so easy to miss because we know it so well but do we know it because when we really know it it changes us when we really know it it changes us go to John chapter 3 perhaps the most familiar verse in the Bible. And here's what it's all about. Here's the meaning of what we just read. Verse 16. For God so loved the world. It doesn't just say He loved the world. It's not saying a fact that God loved the world. The Spirit of God through John is trying to communicate the degree to which God loved the world. This verse is not a statement of just a theological fact that God loves us and sent His Son. And unfortunately, that's where many of us are. We have a knowledge of what God did for us. We have a knowledge in our mind that God loves us. But we don't know in our heart how much He loves us. And the key word in this verse, and maybe the key word in the whole Bible is the smallest word, S-O. Because that word says this verse is not telling you something God did. This verse is telling you God's heart. If you take the word so out of there, it's a statement of an act of what God did. And that's what we know, and that's unfortunately so much of what we celebrate in church on Christmas. But that's not the power of what God did. The power of what God did is in this little word, so. Because this little word changes it from a theological fact of what God did to an expression of God's heart. Because this verse isn't saying God sent His Son. This verse is telling you how much He loves you and how much He loves me and how much He loves that dirty, nasty, sin-filled world out there. For God so loved the world that He gave His only... It's not like He had 20 of them And he said, look, I'll take a shot with one of them. And if they don't like him, well, at least I got nine others, or 19 others. He had one son that had come out of him. He had angels he could have sent. He had streets of gold he could have given. He could have given things. He could have given anything he wanted to. but he took the one that was him, the expression of him. You have children and you watch them grow up. You notice that they begin to act like you. Sometimes that's nice. Sometimes it's not. I find that the older I get, the more I find myself and I look in the mirror saying, my goodness, that's my father. And i found myself sometimes saying and even acting like my father. But you know, that's not shocking. We have an expression. It's kind of a colloquial expression saying, well, it's just a chip off the old block. Being a chip means it's part of the same block. It's just now separated from it. But there's something about that child in your arms and you realize that child came from you. I remember when our last sons, our twins, were born, I was in a waiting room because I couldn't go in and be with... Her. No, it was... Yes, I was in the waiting room while they were getting her ready, and there was a grandmother there, a new, brand-new grandmother, and her son was walking around with a grin from here to here with his little baby in his arms, and she said it was interesting because for the whole nine months, he almost denied that his wife was pregnant. He wouldn't have anything to do with it, I'm um, obviously it had something to do with it, but he wouldn't have anything to do with it <clears throat> in terms of... He, he just... He didn't want to deal with that. He wouldn't want anything to do with it. He didn't want to face it. And she says, they can't get the baby out of his arms now. Something happened in his life when that little baby that... He'd seen the sonograms, he'd seen all that stuff. He'd been through the appointments. But, but suddenly to have that baby in his arms and to look at him, look at something that came from him looking back, on, back at him created a bond changed him from just a man into a father. Why do you think God has the mother carry that child for nine months in her womb and then has designed it in such a way that when the baby's born, when that baby's fed, he's, that baby's looking at the mother and the mother's looking back at that child? There's a bonding taking place that makes no natural, rational sense. It goes beyond it. And it forms this bond of love that no matter what that child ever goes through the rest of their life, it can't break that bond of love. How much more? How much infinitely more would God the Father have love for this Son who was the pure expression of Him? and through whom he had created the universe. And yet, when it became time, and it was needed, and this is the part that's hard for us to grasp, because we're, we're so used to ourselves, and we're so we've never seen into heaven, so we think we're pretty good. You know, we clean up nice, you know, and you know. Come to church, and we're not perfect. No, we're just, we know we're human, but we're pretty good humans, especially now that we're saved. We have no concept of how far Christ came when he came from heaven into the womb of a teenage girl. So, God could have just, you know, had Jesus appear on a mountain one day and just start walking among people. He could have, but that would have been cheating. Because God needed, and this is the hard thing for us to grasp, God needed, in order to be able to die for us, He needed to become one of us. How? I've been trying to think in the morning when I got up this morning and was meditating on this, for some example that, you know, how we can think of what, how far down He came. Because you see, we live on the down part of it, so we don't understand how far down He came. You ever have ants in your house? I don't mean your father's sister. I mean these little things. that that run all over the place, you know, in the springtime, sometimes they get in there. And what do you want to do with them? Now, you might do it a little more nicely. You might buy a trap that does the same thing so you don't have to see it. But we want to kill them. We want to get rid of them. Imagine giving your child's life for one of them. And that doesn't begin to describe what this was like. Philippians talks about have this same mind in you which was in Christ Jesus who did not regard equality with God something to be held on to. He was equal with God but he didn't hold on to it. God took his only begotten son and had him come and take on flesh I said he wasn't going to cheat because so God's son was born into this world the same way you were born into this world the same way I was born into this world he was born into this world the only difference was the seed of the father didn't come from Joseph the seed of the father came from his father in heaven and that's how he could be all God but yet all man How God must love us. That He would take His own Son, His only begotten Son, that He loves infinitely more than you've ever loved your child at the most loving moment you've ever had. Because we get selfish motives mixed in there. He has none. And had Him come, the humility to be a little child, to be dependent. That little baby is dependent on his mother to nurse him, to feed him. He's dependent on them to change him, to take care of him, to not let him get exposed, to not forget him. God's son was dependent on a teenage couple. Wow! And then when you realize God had no plan B for our salvation. the risks he took. Wow. And to grow up and go through the process of discovering who he was and what he was here to do. Wow. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He so loved the world. He so loved the world. Romans chapter 5. Christmas we began talking about the Christmas spirit and what is it that resonates in us what is it what is it that it draws us into the christmas <clears throat> Christmas spirit <clears throat> what is it that that, that that we this intangible thing that we all seem to be looking for what is it it's a deep inner need it's a deep inner need that We're trying to get satisfied with those things of family and friends and food and joyful times together and generosity and all those things we've talked about before and there are more. That's the smell of what we desire. But it's not the substance. Down deep inside of every human being because God built us that way. There is a deep foundational, vital need to be loved and to have value and to have purpose. And we spend our lives trying to find those from other sources. And at Christmas, what happens is we have the opportunity to begin to smell the answer from all these other things but the problem is Christmas goes. And even if we had Christmas 365 days a year, we'd get tired of all that because it doesn't ultimately meet that need. The only thing that fills that deep inner need is the one that was made to fill it, and that's God's love for us. God's love for us. Your value and your purpose, which are part of what fulfills your life, can only come from the one who created you. Your value can only come from someone of greater value than you. Your purpose can only come from someone who has a greater purpose to give to you. And that deep inner need for love can only come from the source of love himself. Romans chapter 5. We're going to pick up in verse 6. For while we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man would one die, yet perhaps for a good one some would dare to die. But God demonstrated, proved, showed His own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. In Romans chapter 8 verse 3 for what the law could not do with us because it was weak through our flesh God did sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin he condemned sin in his flesh so that the righteous requirement of the law may be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the law but according to the according to the flesh but according to the spirit go over to verse 29 for whom he foreknew that's you and me he predestined that just means he planned ahead of time for to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren moreover whom he predestined these he called whom he called he justified whom he justified he glorified what shall we say to these things God is for us. Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also together with him freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It's Christ Jesus who died and furthermore also is risen, who is risen at the right hand of, the, is even at the right hand of God, who makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or sword or recession or getting laid off or sickness or disease or whatever may be going on in your life. For your sake we are killed all day long and we are counted as sheep to the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Why? Paul says, for I'm persuaded. I'm persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall ever be able to separate us from the love of God that's been given to us in Christ Jesus. First John, Chapter Three. Verse One Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. That word, manner of love in the Greek means foreign kind behold what strange foreign kind foreign to the world kind of love the father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God what kind of love is this what kind of love is this The God, the creator of the universe, complete in himself, doesn't need anything, doesn't need anyone. See, we often do things for other people because we know we need something back from them. And we may not even be conscious that that's our motive, or it may not be the full motive, it may be mixed in with there. But we're always looking for it a little bit. What are people doing for me? And I'm doing things for them. God, there's nothing you can do for him. There's nothing you can do for him. He doesn't need anything. I mean, when you can just create what you want with your words, what do you need? He's complete in himself. There's no hole in there, there's no longing, there's no lacking in him. He is complete in himself, he's holy we don't really grasp what that means. No imperfection. No wrong motive. No, even the hint of it, it can't get in. Because so powerful is this holiness that if anything unholy were to try to enter into His presence, it dies in spot. That's why we had to be redeemed. Why would He care about you and me? It's one thing if we were really good. I mean, we were polished and we were sharp and we were loving and we just, just like in the beginning, Adam and Eve, I mean, there were just, you know, if, if I could understand that. But I know me. I may look nice on the outside, but sometimes there are attitudes I have and I'm not where I used to be. and you don't look a lot nicer on the inside either. (laughs) Oh, compared to each other we do, but not compared to Him. What, What kind of love is this? And it's not a love that says, all right, I have this emotion for you. I just, my heart just wells up for you. And I just, you know, and and I want to express it, so I need you to come and be obedient to me so that I can express my love to you. No, 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 no. He acted on that love. The verse we just read in Romans 5 says, while we were still his enemies, rebellious, proud, self-sufficient. You understand? God created us. And yet we think we can do this on our own. Oh, now that we're saved, now that we know some of the word, we know we need God's help. (laughs) As if I can do well on my own to a point, but then I need God to come along behind. No, I'm still trying to do it myself. I just need his help now. And I want to get to the place, if that's my attitude, where I ultimately don't need his help, I can do this myself. That's rebellion in God's eyes. We are his creation and we were created to worship him, to glorify him, to love him back. And instead what we do is we've established our own kingdom in competition with him. And we're the ones he loved and sent his only begotten beloved son To be one of us. And not just to be one of us, but then at the appointed time to go to that cross and to take our rebellion, our pride, our sins on Himself. And then God took His anger, His righteous anger. For your rebellion and my rebellion, your pride and my pride, and he poured it out on his son on the cross to satisfy the requirement of the law so he might have you and me as his own. He made us, we rebelled, and now he bought us back. That's what redeem means, it means to be bought. Back. I had you once. You were mine. I made you. You rebelled, broke the covenant, but I love you so much, so much, that I've come from heaven, become one of you, so I can die in your place, so that I can have you back for myself. Behold. What strange kind of love is this? For God, so loved, and don't forget, it's not the church. For God so loved the world. So the Christmas spirit—it's not the spirit of Santa Claus. It's not the spirit of presents. It's not the spirit of the tree. It's not that those things may be okay, and whatever you want to do with them, but don't miss. They don't satisfy. He goes back to the North Pole. <laughs> the tea tree gets thrown out or put back in the attic. The food eventually gets eaten or it goes stale. All those experiences fade away. And even if they didn't, they can't. They're just the they're just they're just the they just—it whets my appetite for what the longing, the hunger, the thirst that's down in my heart is. So as you go about your holiday traditions, whatever they may be, don't forget—don't forget—to seek with all your heart. Don't forget to tell others what it is you seek what it is that satisfies. Don't forget to tell others. Take in the holiday spirit, but most of all, the spirit of the living God who loved you so much that he came to be among us. We're going to pick up on this, I believe, next week, and then there's a video I want to show you. Let's pray. Yeah, give God a hand. God of God I I don't know why, but I wrestled with this message because I thought, you know, this, was a, this would be, this, this needs to be said on Christmas Eve or next, but I just had, it's in my heart to do it today, and that means there's a reason. That's not my job to figure that out. My job is just to do what the Spirit of God prompts me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you right now. Words can't begin to express what it is you've done for us but we come to thank you right now and may we learn to change the focus and the motive for what we do with the presence and the food and the trees and the celebrations may we learn to change our motive to be expressions of gratitude for what you've done for us May the Spirit of the living God fill us this season and beyond with this love that you poured out within our hearts. May we learn to be carriers, spreaders, receivers and spreaders of this love that we've had a taste of this morning. Fill us with your Spirit that we may together come to understand the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that passes natural understanding. And we thank you for that grace. In Jesus' name.